One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the Second Chance Podcast with me, your host, Raphael Rowe. I'm in Finland at the moment, so I'm recording this remotely. This is episode 71 and my guest is Michael Irwin. Michael was arrested at Gatwick Airport in 2007 with 1.1 kilograms of cocaine hidden in the lining of a bag he collected in the Caribbean. At the time he was addicted to cocaine and alcohol. He was sentenced to 12 years imprisonment for drug trafficking. He served six years in prison and six outside on licence. Whilst in prison, Michael studied criminology and psychology and upon release, he completed a master's at Queen's University in Belfast. His second chance in life started in prison and his book, My Life Began at 40, is an inspiring and fantastic resource for those with loved ones or themselves facing time in prison. This is Michael Irwin. Thanks so much for for joining me at such short notice. Where are you in the world right now? I'm in uh, Belfast in Northern Ireland. That's your hometown, right? That's where you... I'm back home, yeah. Back home from where, when you say back home? Uh, Prison. I was originally in South Africa in 2007. And then I got arrested at Gatwick, trying to smuggle a kilo of cocaine in. And then I spent the first two years in prison in England. And then once the confiscation order was done, I moved back to Northern Ireland and spent a couple of months in McGilligan or McGabry and then the rest of the time in McGilligan. So I got out in 2013. And this is the longest I've ever lived. I just moved there before Christmas. And this is the longest I've ever lived in one place in my life. Let's 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 start then. I mean, what an interesting already. We know what you've done and where you've been. But let's let's start with you. Grew up in Belfast, right? That's right. Yeah. 
What what year was that then? What in, in what years did you grow up in Belfast? Because we all know the troubles. Well, I was born in sixty seven when the troubles started, and then uh, funny enough, there um, last week was the anniversary, fiftieth anniversary of the Abercorn bomb, and myself. You know, the images came up. You know, on the newspapers and stuff. My mum and my brother and my granny were in there. And we were sitting, we were, I was, it's my birthday next month, so I would have been just approaching five years of age. And you know, we have this terrible feeling in the pit of your stomach, like, you know, something doesn't feel right. My mum felt the same thing. And we all left. We all said, we just, we just left. And I can remember the half a cheeseburger sitting there and a bottle of Coke. And the bar was packed and we got to the end of the street and boom, up it went. And, you know, if it hadn't been for that, I don't know what you call it, that inner feeling, we wouldn't be here now, you know. So it was just a reminder of that, you know, it never leaves you. But then I I lived here until I was about 18, 19, and then I took myself off to Greece. So then when I was about 20, I ended up in London, started working on bars there and building sites. You, can I, I, can I just you? I, I have a lot of listeners who are around the world, you know, an international audience listen to this podcast and they wouldn't know what the, the troubles. I mean, most people will. But when you refer to it as the troubles, how, how do you describe it? I mean, we're talking about, uh, I don't know, you know, when we talk about the troubles in in, in Ireland, Northern Ireland, etc. We, we, we here in the United Kingdom, if you like, know what it means. Most people in places around the world don't know what that means. How would you describe it to them for them to understand how close you came to losing your life, as did members of your families on that day? Your instinct told you to leave that bar. As I say, it's all I've known from another age. It, it, it was like war, you know, it's like you see, but it wasn't the way of, of tanks. There was tanks on the streets, but it was more like a guerrilla war, you know, street combat and snipers and bombs uh, being planted in shops, not trying to destroy the infrastructure. So it was, uh, my, my father was a police officer. So I always had to, growing up, I always had to walk a very fine line of who my friends were. You know, we, we would have grown up, if there was a strange car in the street, you would have crossed the road and went to the other side. You either, you either ran past it or, and everybody or walk to the other side or choose an alternative route. Um, you know, going to work in the mornings, you know, the bus would have been, there'd been army on the buses and you would always have found a way. People were very resilient in those days. You know, if there was a bomb on the street was sealed off and you had another way to get to work, you would get to work or if your windows were blown in or whatever, you would patch them up and try to open for business the next day. <laughs> you know, so. And what, tell the audience... Michael, what the guerrilla war what was about, you know, what was the two opposing sides trying to achieve? Well, it was, you know, there was a professional IRA against the British government trying to make United Ireland. You know, um, I wasn't born, Northern Ireland was created in 1922, I think it was, and uh, they decided they were going to take to the streets you know, and make United. You know, they, they had seen, they seen the British as an occupying force. So, uh, you know, I was I was born Protestant, so I wasn't of that Catholic nationalist. So it was basically between Protestant and Catholic. You know, you had that religious religious divide, and so you were born into it. And then there was, you know, paramilitary groups. So for me, it would have been the UDA and the UVF, and thankfully I, I was able to stay away from all of that. Um, how how was, did yeah. you? How did you? How did you manage to stay away from all of that, <laughs> given that? 
you grew up in an environment. I don't know. Most people would think that people get caught up in the politics of it because someone somewhere in your family would have been directly impacted by it. But you kept away from it. You went on to do other things. That well, yeah, I know it's, it's not as joined up as you think it is, Raph. You know, it's, <laughs> the way I was lucky. I mean, I've said this before. My father passed away a few years ago, so I'm able to talk about him now because he won't be telling me off. <laughs> you know, so. Uh, I was sort of protected by him because he sort of knew everything. And then I had family members who were involved with certain groups and the heads of these groups knew them. And it was like my grandfather, he would have, if anybody had joined, tried to get me to join up, they wouldn't have survived the next 24 hours. My grandfather would have killed them, you know, because they, they protected, they knew that I I wasn't that person. You know, I wasn't... I had called those a lot of young lads that joined up in those days cannon fodder, you know, there was a a lot of the intelligent men didn't go to jail. You know, it's a bit like, you know, crime in the UK. You know, there's no real master villains in prison, it's just all <laughs> a lot of the younger ones, you know, that aren't that but as I say, I, I was protected and then when I was old enough, I said I I'm out of here. You know, my grandma gave me a couple of grand at the time, which was a lot of money. And I took myself off to Greece. I just, I just, I was just sickening and horrified of friends that have been killed, and you know, I mean, the way I grew up, you were either going to be killed or in prison. And you got out of it, and you went to Greece. And what did you do in Greece? What was the attraction in Greece? I was just, uh, you know, 18, 19 years of age. You just threw a backpack on your your shoulders, and there's a big world out there. I'll see world touchdown. You know, you, you just don't think about it. So I spent a year out there. Uh, did a lot of drinking and partying and meeting lovely young ladies from all over the world. <laughs> so, and then uh, I, I ended up, the money had run out then, and uh, I went to London. And my, my friend, he, he was here already been working there, and he got me, a, I was actually, I had no money left. I was on a Sunday night, and he was lending me the money to come back to Belfast. And this was in the, the Gunter Arms on the Fulham Road. And uh, just up from Stamford Bridge, which I know you know well. And uh, uh, he says, I've got a three-day labouring job, if you fancy it. And I went, how much is it? And he says, 15, 20 quid a day. And I went, well, that's 60 quid. That'll, that'll get me through the next week. And then the job turned out being a couple of months. And that was, I ended up staying there and working in pubs and working on building sites. And But it was that close to leaving, you know. <laughs> Say fate has a has a hand in all of this. You know? <laughs> say, Is this why you became a Chelsea fan? Because you were living close to where Stamford no, Bridge I, was. No, I, I had to I had to bring this up in the, at the cup final last week. I have supported Chelsea for almost seven years of age because everybody else at the time was in the Liverpool and Leeds, and you know, whenever I was about seven, and uh, I'm sure you might remember yourself. And uh, I just I want to be different from everybody else, you know. So I've always supported Chelsea. Like, I, I also, so you're supporting I to, Chelsea, you're living in Stamford Bridge, you're working in and around. I, I used to run them when I was 23, 24. I, I used to run the Chelsea Headhunters Bar by the gasworks there, the Rose. And it was some, some. I mean, the pubs, as you probably know, you might know the area, a lot of the pubs are, the pub business even in London, there's always some sort of villainy going on and, you know, all the, the local faces. And, you know, I've actually written a few sort of fictional stories about it Um is it fact? Is it true? Did it really happen? Did it not? You know, I was there <laughs> or wasn't I? You know, so it was, uh, but there was always some sort of skullduggery going on somewhere in some sort of pubs, but at the, 
always found it. I got a bit of respect because of where I was from, and you know, I didn't suffer fools lightly. So, whenever paths did cross with certain people, you know, you'd have to maybe bar guys out of the pub or throw guys out or being out of order, or whatever. You'd have to have a go and sit down with somebody. And sort of why did this happen? And then said, so, well, he was doing this and he was abusive to somebody, so I'm not going to let that happen in my bar. You know, so it was, uh, I think that if you gave them the respect, the respect was given back to you. Because they didn't know, I, I used the Belfast thing to my advantage. And I sort of played on it. They didn't know if I was in on something or I wasn't in something. And uh, I say I was young, young and fit then, you know, so you, you were able to, Carry yourself a certain way, you know. <laughs> if you don't, I'd growl every now and again. Works, you know what I mean. But uh, it was, uh, yeah, it was, a, it was an amazing time. I mean, I met some very lovely guys and and, and girls, you know. But it was, uh, I say, uh, the, 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 I was going to say about the drug thing. I always dabbled in a bit of blow in those days, a bit of bit of weed or whatever. But I never, I never really got into the heavy stuff, you know. How did you end up in South Africa? I mean, was that the trip after London? So when you done with the bars, you well, moved uh, no, to South I was still I was still living in London. I uh, I, was, I ended up back in the printing trade, and I, I had an accident at work, and they wouldn't give me the time off work to recover. So I says, "Look, I'm going to take this to court." So it was a three year court case, and uh, I won it, and I got uh, just under hundred grand, and because uh, it was like three years earnings, and I. Uh, I met this young girl from South Africa who was working behind my local bar, and I said that I always had a dream because I read Wilbur Smith books whenever I was a kid, growing up in Belfast, and uh, they took me away to add away from all the the craziness, all the madness, and uh, I always wanted to stand on Table Mountain. So uh, I met her and had the money, so I flew over with for a month, stayed with her for a couple of weeks in Joburg, and then went down to Cape Town, and fulfilled my dream and met a few people there. And, and, and when you got, I've been to the top of, of Table Mountain, was it what you expected or was it just a windy? It was better. It was, better. <laughs> it was actually better. <laughs> ah, right. Okay. Well, I suppose when yeah. you're young and whatever, I remember going up there and um, it was cold, wet and windy. I, that's all I remember. The The view was spectacular. I, th- I felt the drive towards the mountain was more spectacular, this kind of flat-top mountain in the middle of yeah. Cape Town. But you say, for you, it was better than the dream. Well, I actually wrote about it. There was, uh, there was a guy whenever I was in McGillican, he was a writer in res- residence, and he got us to write a postcard from. So I wrote a postcard from Cape Town, and it was all it's all in that story, you know, and... Uh, I said, my girlfriend, she was worrying about her hat blown off. As you said, it's always windy in Cape Town, you know. You want to try playing golf there? But uh, <laughs> I remember I said, just you go and have a cup of tea and let me do what I have to do. And I, I closed my eyes and then nudged up to the wall. You know, you got the steps to the wall and then I just opened my eyes. I was like, this my tear run down my cheek. And I was like, wow, you made it. You made it this far, you know. You sort of go, you re- re- read those books when you were 12, 13 years of age and you made a promise to yourself. I know, fast forward 20 years, whatever it was, and uh, you're, you're doing it, you know, which was... Uh, Incredible. Yeah, it was pretty cool, you know. Never give up and say, life interferes sometimes with your dreams and your hopes. How did it interfere with yours? Well, as I said, there's so much went on in between that. <laughs> you know, I never thought in a month of Sundays that I would end up, through that accident, I was able to have the money and then I was able to... And then 
I had a flat at the time in London and I, and I sold it and then I moved out there permanently. So life interfered a bit, but, you know, I was I was looking away through a misfortune that I had that lump sum. And I said, it was always my dream to go there. But then when I got there, I fell in with some smashing people. And I loved my golf and all I was doing was playing golf every, every other day, you know. And, you know, because out there with the exchange rate, I was a millionaire out there. You know, and it was uh, at a great time. And then whenever I, I split up with a girlfriend, she moved back to London because it was more economical for her to live there. But uh, that's when I started getting into the the cocaine and the, the sort of seedier side of, of Cape Town, you know. And when you say cocaine and the seedier side, were you using the drug, selling the drug, a bit of both? I started off just taking it then because I, I was out, you know, you're up, you're up at like six or seven, and five or six or seven in the morning. You're finishing about one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon. Then there's rugby or football on, especially at the weekends. So you're just in the bar, and then you're maybe playing the next morning again. I mean, and I don't care how fit you are. You need some sort of stimulant <laughs> if you're if you're doing that day in and day out, you know. So uh, I started taking the. A friend who said to me, said, do you want a wee bit of coke? And I says, oh, I've, I've only ever had, like, two lines before in London. I always felt oh, it, was, it, was, it was a good buzz, you know. And uh, then I got into it, and then I got into it too much. And I have what one in ten people's called an addictive personality. So I couldn't just have it for the weekend. You know, it just sort of, then I took over my life and destroyed it. And then the money ran out. And... I ended up running about with some very dodgy geezers towards the end, and uh, I owed them money, so I had to do a trip to get do the trip to get me out of the the hole that I was in, you know. But I sort of knew it wasn't coming back. I was hoping it wasn't coming back because I'd, I'd ended up dead, like, because I was, uh, I've said this several times over the years, you know, I, I was driving about with a gun between my legs and meeting these guys in black areas, you know. But I was only allowed in because of who I was who I was with. Was this during or after the apartheid era? After, I, I went out there a couple of years after. You know, so I, I visited Robin Island a couple of times whenever I went out there the first time, and I said when people came over, and in hindsight, I should have paid a wee bit more attention. You know? <laughs> I don't know why you'd been out there yourself, but it was uh, it was whenever I went to the there's a chalk pit in Robin Island where the they were chiselled the, the, the chalk out of the, the limestone, out of the, the walls. And this is where they taught each other their law and their, just by writing it in the sand. I remember putting my knees down in the sand, imagining I had a little pick and trying to write my name in the wind. As you know, it's windy, the wind kept blowing it away. I go, how did these guys do this, you know? Because they weren't allowed pen and paper or anything like that. It was, it was sort of quite mind-blowing, the, the stoicism and the, that they had, you know, so it was, uh, not always had that sort of respect for Mandela and what he did, you know, and obviously read all the books and seen the movies and stuff, but, uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was just it's one of those ones you don't, it's like, you don't get it until you're given your own time. You know, I thought about it at the time, and but it was only whenever I was in my own cell, on my own, that all those memories started coming back. And you're thinking, oh, what am I going to do here? And then, funny enough, I remember reading about, remember reading about your case actually when I was in, when I was working in the bars in London. And then I remember seeing you doing a documentary on 
panorama. <laughs> and I thought, fair, fair play that guy, you know, wow, that must have been some journey and all that. And I go, how the hell? And I said, hey, why can't I do something like that? And then there was another guy on the arrest, he was involved. Anyway, so I decided to start getting embarking on the education thing. Before you before you talk about that, let me just bring you back to to where we got to in terms of your Sorry, I go off on a week tangents every now and again. Uh, but then if you don't mind, I'll I'll bring you back. <laughs> yeah, I understand. But you're you're now carrying a gun between your legs, dodging people that are after you and probably chasing people that you want something from. But it got so bad, your your drug addiction, your your addiction to cocaine, and I don't know what other drugs, if any, or drink, and then you found yourself in a situation where you were now about to um, traffic drugs yourself. Tell me about how that came about, what you did, and what happened. Well, it was my 40th birthday the month before, and I'd already decided to do the trip, and my father came over to visit me. And I was in a mess, but I never told him. And I wish I had it at the time, because he would have got me out. But it didn't, and it was too far gone. You know, you're not, you're not with it. So the reason I decided to do it was... You're in denial all the time. And you think, you know, I've always been able to survive. And I thought I could survive this. I mean, I just need to get that money. You know, so I, mean, I remember the, the morning I left, my dad had left and I, I, I sort of said goodbye to him. And I thought I'd never see him again. Because if I if I don't get, I remember the, the morning I was leaving, I had a few people around the night before. And. There was spilt cocaine and other stuff on the grout and the tiles on the floor. And I was down on my hands and knees, you know, trying to get a get a hit. And then the guy called round about an hour later with some some more coke and uh, brandy to pick me up. And, but I remember when I was down there, I mean, if I go to jail, I'll get about seven years. Maybe I could start a degree. And I remember, I remember thinking that when I was down on my hands and knees on the floor. Because I mean, if you don't get out of this, Michael, you're going to end up dead. Either the drugs are killed you or somebody's going to shoot you. Had you ever been in trouble with the law before, Michael? Had you ever spent time in prison? No, you, no. you were up until this point almost a law-abiding citizen, although you almost. were... <laughs> almost. Almost. So you were doing stuff that you never got caught for, whatever that is. Tell me about the moment where you took possession and where you took possession of the drugs that you were about to try and traffic and where were you going to traffic those drugs to? Uh, I was in Trinidad, and they'd give me like a hundred dollars, and I was only meant to be there for like two days. Uh, I was I ended up there for a month, and I picked a bag up. Like after a week, there was some sort of delay, and they sent me another hundred dollars. Met these guys in the the center of Trinidad, and they gave me a few quid. Says don't worry about it here because I had to change flights and all that. You know, it was, it was all being paid for by them, and. Obviously, in hindsight, I know better now, but uh, I was carrying the bag about with me for about three weeks. And of course, I wasn't able to get any coke there, and I was just drinking. I was coming down. I did get a little bit at some stages, but uh, any money that I had, I was just, I was just drinking, just trying, trying to, trying to get through it. And then I got kicked out of this hotel, and I was in. I met this. <laughs> I remember going into the bar, I had $7 left, and I had nowhere to live. And I'd hidden my bag behind these dumpsters out the back of this hotel. And it was a posh hotel, and I went in and I got myself a beer, and I ended up sitting talking to this Scottish fella. 
And uh, I said, I told him a bunch of lies. I said, my credit card had been stolen and all that. It was, uh, I could give my dad, my dad was going to wire me money the next day, funny enough, because I told him a load of lies as well. So he paid for my room that night. And then he paid for the next couple of days. My dad wired me some money over. So that got me staying there. So I was waiting to get out of there from the, the traffickers for the flights. So that kept being delayed. And then my dad says, right, there's something seriously wrong here. This is the day before I was leaving. He says, I'm going to wire you 500 quid. And I want you to get a flight tomorrow. I want you to go straight to the airport. And whether, where, what way you come back, I don't care. I want you home within the week. And then at the same time, I got an email from the trafficker saying that my flight was booked. So I had the cash in one hand and the flight. And I went, okay, I'll keep the cash. I'll get home to England and I'll talk my way out of this. And I'll go through the thing. So uh, go through their tickets. So, but they were waiting for me. They'd loaded the plane. That's what the three-week delay was. The traffickers had loaded the plane. So what you're saying, just so that I got this, you go to Trinidad to traffic some drugs. It's all delayed. But during that time, the the guys that are employing you to to traffic had employed other people so that one person would get caught as they get off the plane, but the others would get through with their load. And you were that one person that got caught. Where did you take the drugs to? Here, to the United Kingdom? Gatwick. Gatwick. So you landed at Gatwick Airport. How much drugs were you carrying, Michael? At uh, 1.1, it started off at 2.5, but it whittled its way down to 1.1 kilos. And what's the street value at the time of that? Well, the, you know, the, the, government, the customs, will, um, the government will work it out as uh, 98,000, but it's only like 12 grand. But it was, uh, you know, they, they would put it with the street value on it. So that would be worth just under 100,000? Yeah. First time you've ever done anything like this out of desperation because you were an addict yourself. You got caught. I don't, I don't know why. I, I mean, it's, it's one of those things in hindsight, Raphael, you can look back and go, I mean, every time I flew anywhere, I always got stopped because it was on my own and I had a Belfast accent. You know, so what on earth possessed me to do it? I don't know. Cause, but they, they, they were waiting for me, like, because the, the, the customs guy actually says, oh, you took your time, didn't you? Oh, so your name was put up, and do you think the traffickers did that? They sort of I, said, I "Expect this guy. yeah, yeah." Because they've always got to give one in order to get the rest. We know that. Well, I remember when I was standing there, there's a powder. They stuck a spike in the bag, and the powder flew over the the bag, and the cuffs were going on me. And I go, "Jesus, you're not talking your way to this one, you know?" And there was people walking past, nodding at me, winking, and all, going. And I sort of half recognised a couple of people, but I was in a drunken stupor. I didn't know what enemy was up, like you know, but. Uh, so it all became clear afterwards. <laughs> did you go guilty? No, I didn't actually. I went uh, because they told me if I did get caught that they had uh, people on the jury and all this crap, and I believed it. And I thought I and I was still messed up, so I was like going through detox, and I went and I went not guilty. In hindsight, I should have played guilty because the only time I was ever been dishonest with myself, and I was, I was just sort of let this play itself out, and then. Whenever it sort of sobered up and the trial was coming up, I went, I was stuck in this headset of, I didn't know that the stuff was in there and this was my defence. And this had stuck somewhere because I didn't know it was in there. Where is the bloody stuff? Because I had the, I had the, I had the empty bag. I, I took it all my clothes and I was feeling the line and I'm like, oh, there must be in the little tubes or something. I can't go, where the hell is it? 
And then with all this mixed up stories, they said, no, somebody will put it in at the airport and all that. The baggage handler will put it in. So you've all these hundreds of little, what do you call them, grooming, brainwashed stories that you've accepted while you're drunk. So, I, no, I, I, I played, uh, I should have played guilty, but I played not guilty. But I, and, uh, I remember a guy in, when I was on remand, he says, just plead guilty. He says, you'll get six or seven for that amount. He says, you'll be out in three years. And I says, I know, but I'll need at least four to get a degree. That's what you were thinking about? I said, it took me, it took me about six months to a year to f- sort of get my the sensible head on. You don't just come off an, an, a, an alcohol and drug addiction like that. It takes, it takes your, a while for your brain to start working. because you. And were you able to, to kick your alcoholism and drug addiction yeah. whilst you were on remand? I was... Uh, I spent the first two weeks with this young fella on the, you know, the introduction wing, and it was like porridge in reverse. He was he was in his early twenties, and I was the old boy, first timer. But he had been in since he was twelve or thirteen. And I just and he seen me go through the horrors of detox. No way, you're just cut off, and I'm not going to the, but it wasn't pretty, you know. And uh, he was cleaning me up and all, and throwing water around me to clean myself, you know, the vomit and the diarrhea and all the the rest of it. But anyway, we're moved to the, the wing, the main wings, and he says, he says, I can get you anything you want down here. He said, I mean, well, get us some hooch, give me some blow, and give me some coke. And I already had, I still had some cigarettes on me. And uh, he went away and came back, and I was having, like, one of my last couple of proper cigarettes. And I said, you know what, this is a chance. This is a chance for you to, to clean your act up, Michael. And they came back, and I said, like, knock yourself out. He said, that's on you, but you look after me. I'm paying you now to keep an eye out for me and show me the ropes. And he says, are you sure? No, he didn't have to ask twice. Like, you know, so it was, uh, and it was like that, you know. So then I ended up, I knew a couple of people in there through my pub days in London, because it was, you know, I say every manner, you know, somebody. And there's, a, I, I, I told the guy, says, I'd give it a week and somebody would come into my cell to see if I'm all right. And that did happen. Like, So, uh, yeah, I just uh, I said there and then, and uh, I didn't stop smoking. It was only like two years later I stopped smoking when I went to Rye Hill. And then, Are uh, you convicted now, or is this your remand period? Because you've gone oh, to... Oh, no, my, my, my licence ran out in 2019. What, what did you get at the court? You pleaded not guilty, got found guilty. I got 12 years, six in prison, six on license. And so that was, you were found guilty, pleaded not guilty, jury found you guilty, judge sentenced you to 12 years in prison. I didn't get any acknowledgement for quite, no, there was no comment and all that stuff, you know. So I didn't get any, if I pleaded guilty, I would have got four years off. But the thing was, they thought, because I was living in South Africa with no fixed means of income, and had contacts in Spain and America and all that, they thought they'd got an Irish Pablo Escobar sort of thing, you know, so they, they threw the book at me, and they went on a fishing expedition, so they couldn't back down from that. You got 12 years, went to prison, was able to turn your life around, because the first thing you did was, was you know, break your, your substance addiction. What did that lead to, Michael? Because, you know, no one likes prison. You and I both know prison is a horrible place, regardless of all the machos that say, <laughs> oh, I can do it standing on my head. You and I know when that door bangs and you're on your own. Well, it did stand on my head a few times. Off. It did stand on my head a few times. You know? 
Yeah. And I punched a few walls and headbutted a few walls and stuff like that. You know, you go you go through a process where I think, well, for me, I was lucky because I was 40, you know, so I've seen a bit of the world. And I just went, this isn't going to break me, you know, I'm going to I'm gonna use this. So this is, this is a chance for me to take time out of life. You know, I don't have any bills to pay it or so that, um, but it's a it's a horrible place to do it. I wouldn't recommend it, you know. But uh, I remember I remember there was a a prison officer came to my door, and he says, "Are you? I won't use the language, but he says, are you uh, Irish so and so? Get your arse down to see the SO.'" And I'm going, and I went down to the SO. I says, "What's your man's problem?" He says, "Oh, he's just having a bad day." And I went, "If anybody else was to speak to me that in real life." I'd have ripped their heads off, you know. What gives that man the right to speak to me like that? He doesn't know me. And at the time, I was reading about the Zimbardo experiment. I just got a, a little opening book from the Open University. And I was reading about the Zimbardo experiment. And I went, would I be that bastard? You know, would I be that guy if I was wearing the uniform? Would I, would I be the same as him? So what was then, there was a little switch went on on me then. And then when the scene, the likes that young lad I was doubled up with and a few others, I was doubled up in the first sort of few months. And then I had enough and I said I couldn't do it anymore. So they put me on a, a threatened to kill the next person that came into my room and they put me in high risk. So I, I spent the rest of my time then the whole way through the system on on my own. But I, I started getting into the studies and... It's funny, once I got convicted, it was then, it was in Brixton, and then I got convicted and was sent to Rye Hill. <laughs> I thought you might appreciate this. It just popped into my head last night when I was thinking about some of the stuff. So there was, a, as I said, I've been, Urban James had been another name that came up, you know, and uh, I said, these guys are in journalism. And I'd done a journalism course in Rye Hill and got barred from the education department for asking too many questions. <laughs> <laughs> Too, too much knowledge, you know. So, uh, but it was only when I got back to through. I, I sort of got, I had a couple of uh, mishaps, but it didn't get started fully into uh, the degree until I got back to Northern Ireland in two thousand and nine. I was transferred home then to see the see out the rest of my sentence, and that's when I got stuck into it. I mean, I didn't have a minute. I was a survey orderly. I was the number one on the wing. I was a listener. You know, I did all these things, and then I was doing a degree. I mean, come eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night, I was. And then, um, in Northern Ireland at the time, it's the stuff that I'm still fighting with. Is at the time they woke you up every hour on the hour to make sure you weren't dead. Right. Okay. So that. But education, education for you in prison was was a way out. And you studied, if I'm right, I mean, you studied a bit of journalism while you were here in the UK. But when you got back to Belfast. You studied criminology, is that right? Criminology and psychological studies, yeah. And did you graduate whilst you were in prison or when you got out of prison? I did my final exam 12 days before I got out. And uh, the governor, who didn't like me very much, excuse me, had double booked the room. So we spent like 15 minutes, me and the teacher running about trying to find a room to do my last examine and the only room available was his office. Why criminology? Why did you decide when you were in prison that you were... Well, it was one of those things, come back to the Zimbardo thing, you know, I thought there was a future in it because I just wanted to help those that followed behind me. And I said, what better way of studying something is to study yourself? It was a bit like psychology, 
well, a lot of people think when they start in psychology, that's what they're going to get, but it isn't quite like that. But I thought criminology was a, a feed into all these different things, and all these different social work and, you know, all, all those types of things and probation and all these things that I could probably hopefully do whenever I get out. So I knew that when I left prison, I'd be 46 years of age with no qualifications. Um, I'm a printer by trade. So, you know, I, I didn't want to go back to that. And I said, I knew I would need letters after my name. So there was a governor there in about 2011. He had been over to Cambridge and he had met Shad Maruna. I don't know if you've heard of Shad. He's one of the world's American guys, one of the world's top good friend now. Like, but he said, if you believe in this redemption script, that this paper that he had just published, he says, we've got the very guy in, in McGilligan. And, and Shad was at Queen's University at the time. And he came up and met me. And the prison governor arranged for him to come and meet me. And he gave me his book, Making Good. So I read that. And I was like, that was a game changer for me, you know. And... Uh, it wasn't easy. It was like, you know, the topic of this, there's about second chances. And, and, you know, I made that happen for myself. I did get support. And it's okay having that second chance, but are you going to be able to use it when you get out? And have you? Well, to, ways, in certain ways I have, in certain ways I haven't. Um, I found a terrible battle. I mean, even getting into Queens for my master's degree which I, I got out in June, so I started my master's in September. And I couldn't apply properly because I was still inside and you had no internet connection. So, my, my, you know, so you had to, and the people in the admin said, but why can't they just... But my friend was in charge of working in the students' union and she did it all for me via emails and stuff, just sent me out your details. and So something as simple as just registering to do your master's because you were in prison became quite... Yeah. problematic but you got through that and you were able to yeah did the masters uh, i remember phil phil scraton was my supervisor and i was thought and that was just when the hillsborough disaster reported came out i had him as a guide and nobody went for because of my age and my sort of me <laughs> we'd have went out for a pint afterwards you know and uh discuss things uh, but uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I don't want to put anybody in jeopardy here, but the, whenever you go to university, they have an assessment panel inside the the university itself. All universities do. Anybody with a criminal record, so you do, you have to declare it, as you know. And I don't mind. I mean, I, I I'm always up front. You know, this is what I did. And uh, there was one person on the panel who said, "This man is at risk to the twenty thousand students in Queens because he's a drug trafficker," and the whole place went nuts and they were threatening to take them to court if I wasn't allowed in and all and that's something I did want to mention because recently in UCSB University of California Santa Barbara about a month ago they purposely blocked all the formerly incarcerated people's applications for PhDs has it become that much of a problem? Because I was going to answer that question, you know, in the field of criminology, you know, a social science such as that, and I'm studying criminology myself, I'd expect that they would welcome people with um, prison experience or, or previous convictions because of your insight and knowledge. That's that's what I thought too. But I think that there's, there's two, two sides that I'm part of convict criminology. I've just been reading about convict criminology. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, I mean, say I, I I went to a conference like twelve days after I got out. <laughs> I had to get permission to fly to England and all that, you know. But uh, I met Jeffrey Ross. He was he's like one of the founding members, and I'd read John Irwin's books, you know, all these guys, and uh, I met Andy Aresti and Sasha and all the guys, but. And it wasn't funny enough. I wasn't drinking at that time. And and just for the audience's sake, convict criminology is really a a catchphrase uh, uh, or a term that that ex prisoners, alongside radical or, or or critical criminologists, have have kind of come together to to develop this kind of discipline, which uses the insight of uh, former prisoners. Well, it's, it's not just former prisoners. It's, I mean, Jeff is a former officer. You know, he he worked in a psychiatric. I can't remember what one he worked in, but you know, there there's uh, there's prison officers involved in it as well. There's governors involved in it. You know, a lot of people sort of don't like the label convict criminology, so they sort of you know everybody's all about labels at the minute, and that's. Uh, but what but in uh, essence, it's kind of people's lived experience. In it's, the a, it's a global. Uh, it's a global group of people who help people get into PhDs. And help further their further education when they get out of prison uh, through their ex, through their own lived experiences. So uh, I've had, obviously had that great great support from them, and I ended up getting my masters, and I was meant to be doing this, and then I always came up to so, up against some sort of hurdle, and then my my health went a few years ago, so I haven't, and then I got fed up listening to politicians, you no know, promising because it's okay getting through the. The, the government hierarchy, you know, the prison hierarchy, because they all want to say, oh, this is, we help this guy do this, you know, this is what education's about. But it's, you know, I always remember that line from Porridge, you know, that Godber's got a, an O-level or something like that. He says, but we'll, and then Mackay says, yeah, but will they ever get the chance to use it? You know, and that was way back in Norman Stanley Fletcher's days, you know. So I always yeah, want TV sitcom, but but that's the interesting point, and that's one of the main reasons uh, talking to you. But it's not just, you know, you came through your prison experience, your substance addiction. You've got a a, a degree and a master's in criminology. You're also an author, right? You wrote a book about your life experiences, so you've used all the negatives in your life for for positives, and. What's just tell me a little bit about the book? The book is, I think it's you started your life at 40. I can't remember the title. My Life Began at 40. My Life Began at 40. That's the title of your book, which is a book about your life story, more or less. Yeah, well, I sort of started with about the prison. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you write your story? Why did you think it was necessary for well, you to write a book? It started, it started off the, the day that I was telling you about when that prison officer came and spoke to me the way he spoke to me, just out of the blue. And I had, I had a, I'd got myself a jotter because there was no way you writing letters to people. And I went, what the f- gives that guy that right to speak to me like that? He's, and I've just started writing down. And, and I think and I've, I've still got the old original copies in, in, in a box next door. And I think I went through three or four pages. I was that angry, you know, right? And I just started recording a daily diary, like a diary type thing. And the actual book is only half of what I've written because the, the editor says, look, you've got two stories going on here. One is your journey of hope and how you've changed your life around and encouraging others and, you know, getting to where you've got. The other one is your war with the prison service. And I says, but that's what, that's what each day is like. You know, you're having that educational battle and the learning battle. 
then you're also having to deal with the daily living of prison. So the other book is there ready to be written. I think I'm going to call it Urban versus HMP or, or something, C7874 versus HMP. But the editor says, you know, you need to be more defined here for a, for the story for the readers because it starts with nothing and ends up leaving prison with a degree, you know. But it was just, it's just basically a diary, you know. I would have said, I've spoke to a couple of other people of this and they asked me, I said, I've had a bump into you in the wing. I said, I've just been chatting a very interesting guy there and, oh, he's done this and he's done that, you know. So I've just shared my daily things and I put it all together as a, a book, you know. I, I, I'm interested in, you, you know, you've turned your life around. You've come out of prison, you, you know, with, with a PhD. You, you are or a master's and you're an author. But do you feel that you've been able to use those qualifications to work in the field of criminology at universities? I mean, have you been able to put it to good use? Well, I, I have. I say for about three or four years when I got out, I was still on licence. So I sort of had to be careful what I would say. Uh, but I was given a, a seat at the top table, if you know what I mean, with the, the movers and the groovers behind closed doors. You know, I've had loads of private meetings with, uh, you know, I was the ex-head of the prison service invited me up to headquarters, and I'm the only one that's ever been there. I was allowed out on a one-home leave to go to Stormont to talk to MPs. You know, uh, so it did open, what that did was, given educated, she said, what they call me is a critical friend. You know, I do believe in some of the good stuff that's going on, but you know prison's not the place to be doing it, but they're doing their best with what they've got. And they, I know they are at the minute, but uh, what it allowed me to, was to have these conversations. And without those qualifications, and without, you know, when you, when you put the lived experience together with academic research, it's a very powerful tool, because nobody can just say, oh, oh, he's got a chip on his shoulder. You're using your argument backed up by academic research which is something that, you know, governments and things are, are reading into. But then the hardest thing is to get through to politicians. It's okay to sway in management and you can change little bits. And thankfully, I've been able to help change little bits over the years. But say, I took a, I got, I sort of run out of steam. And the health wasn't too good. But it was about, just before COVID, I was up at Hyde Bank, which was a young offender centre. I call it Hyde Bank College. <laughs> But it's, it's for uh, young, younger people, men and women. I've been there, actually. All right, okay. So the, the the governor there, I was actually on the phone with him last week, he was one of the guys that helped me towards the end. You know, it was only in my last few weeks, but anyway, Shad had invited me along, and there was a guy meant to come over from England to talk, and he wasn't able to make it. And I said, so what's your plan B? And Wayne Hart was a guy coming up from Dublin. I says, who's your plan B? And he says, you are. And I went, oh, shit, right, okay. <laughs> so, so I got up and did my bit, and I'm at the head of the prison service and a few others there, and I met this guy called uh, Richard Good, and he invited me onto the board of the Turnaround Project. So uh, we had a couple of meetings after that, so I'm now a trustee of the Turnaround Project here in Northern Ireland with a, some other fantastic people, and we're building. You know, COVID then came along and sort of shut everything down, but we're starting to build again, you know, so... All that stuff gave, got me where I am now, you know. So I recently, you might have seen him on Twitter or whatever, Michael McCusker, the turnaround doing the podcast, and I was able to put his name forward to get the job that I should have been doing. 
you know, if I call him my doppelganger, but he's uh, he's, an <laughs> he's, uh, he's an amazing guy. You know, we've had a meet up and had a few chats, and he's he's got the, the fire that I used to have. You know, it's like let's go in here and let's talk and let's share our experience. And you know, he's he's networked a lot of people, and uh, I'm very proud of that. And you know, without me having the qualifications to do that, I wouldn't have been in that position. So what does the future hold then? I mean, what are you planning and plotting to do in the future? You talked about potentially writing the second book. You're using your criminology and your second chance to bring other people in and to inform and educate those who need an insight. What's next? Um, so I threw the idea out of forming a prisoner's political party to uh, a couple of people, but it was sort of laughed at. <laughs> Not just thinking, but when people say there's no no votes in prison, you've been at this game for a while. You think of all the families and victims that you've met who can't see any justice anywhere. You know, the prisons are a whole... And if you had somebody that was up there, like a bloody good politician, wanting to deliver on criminal justice and not just doing sound bites, who would get your vote? It's just a little <laughs> mad idea. It might come on my day, but... Uh, I certainly think it's, I mean, yeah. And what about, are you doing any research or any studies at the moment around crime and justice? No, as I say, I've, uh, through my own personal health, mental health reasons, it's, uh, it's, I've had to take a, a step back. Oh, right, okay. Because I, I ended up with PTSD and all that. You know, I probably had it before I went into prison, but drink and drugs master. But then when I sobered up, I mean, when I got out, I was 10 times worse than the ones in, you know. And uh, as I was, I was going to say to you, I remember going back and Jeffrey Ross saying to me in Wilverham, he says, you're not the only one, Michael, you know, because I thought I was. I thought I was. A, but I was the only one in Northern Ireland. But now I'm sort of, I make phone calls, send emails, and I work behind the scenes. It's like this, chatting to you, and, you know, hopefully good things will come out of it. You know, you build and then somebody else will pick the phone up and they just share your experience. And I say, I talk a lot about myself, but I will only ever talk about my own experiences because nobody else, no two people's experience of prison is the same. You can actually... Absolutely. Absolutely. And the same landing at the same time and witness the same thing, whether good or bad, and the two people will walk away with two totally different points of view of it, you know. So that's why I know it's safe to only talk about me because I can't be accused of lying then or speaking for other people. And through well, my... And I suppose that's what, what most people want to hear is your testimony. That's why I'm I'm speaking to you. The theme of my podcast is obviously second chance. So I ask everybody what second chance means to you, either as an individual or what you would like to see be given to, to other people. What does second chance mean to you, Michael? Well, for me, prison, prison gave me that second chance. The actual thing of being taken out of society for six years gave me that second chance. I could have, I could have went one way or the other, you know. So it gave me that second chance, and it gave me, but through then through your own uh, sheer bloody mindless and tenacity or whatever, you got there. So the second chance, I remember going to uh, a job for years ago in Belfast with my mate, and we went round all the employers and asked them what their policy was on employing former prisoners and they didn't know the only ones that had them were like banks <laughs> you, couldn't have, you couldn't go and work in a bank or something like that you know? um, they didn't know and for me that second chance is 
giving people that chance. I mean, I've I've seen over the years young guys getting jobs when somebody's given that wee chance and they will spend the rest of their life proving you right. And by sharing your experiences, by sharing this is me, I'm hopefully giving somebody else the courage to go and create a second chance for themselves. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. And it it's a good point to end on. Is there anything else I've not asked you about, Michael, that you want to talk about? Otherwise, that was a good note to end on. Everybody deserves a second chance. Give them a second chance and they will work hard to keep at it. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, that Timpsons is a perfect example of that, you know. It's, uh, the guy just won't take no for an answer. You're always getting... It's the reason why I do what I do is because whenever I see people, I see young people, and they've never had a chance in life, you know, they've ended up in prison because of their lives and their lifestyles and how they were grew up. And help create that chance. Give them the opportunity to prove themselves wrong. You know, that's... I have a passion about that. Like, you know, so I'll always... You're not change the system, but always keep keep chipping away, you know. You mentioned, just to end, you mentioned that, you know, you've had some health issues, mental health issues uh, uh, recently. Are you at a good place now? Do you think you're you're at a place where everything's good or at least you're managing it? No, I mean, this is like just before this, this morning, I'm sitting doing two meditations. I'm up and up from half five. Just mind racing. If I had... If I had to go out and do it, lucky enough it's at home that I'm doing it from. If I had to go and get a taxi or get picked up and go in, in the room full of people, I wouldn't go. You said that's because you, you're suffering from anxiety at the moment. Well, PTSD, it triggers all that. But I, I did I did the, the CBT and I obviously came across it in the studies. I know what it is. It's adrenaline and it's that fight or flight mode. But I'm quite safe here sitting in the house, if you know what I mean. If I was to have to go and get a taxi and all, I'd have to talk to people and everything. I'd be totally different ballgame. Well, I hope by talking, people understand a little bit more about your story, what, what you're going through. And I hope talking to me has given you some relaxation for today and made you feel a bit better. Thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a pleasure talking to you and thanks for sharing your story. Thanks, Ralph. If any aspiring criminologist is listening to this episode, I would encourage you to reach out to the British Convict Criminology Collective. It emerged through organising various seminars, guest lectures and university-based links with specific prisons. There is no formal membership. It's a loose and informal collection of people aligned with the same objectives. It includes and welcomes people without experience of imprisonment because of the support and encouragement they can offer to those with that experience. In both the United States of America and the UK, non-convicted academics have been central to the development of convict criminology. This is a great network providing support to prisoners and ex-prisoners in establishing themselves as academics in criminology and similar disciplines. As an aspiring criminologist myself, I will definitely be touching base with them at some point. Thanks for listening to this episode and please share with your friends, family and colleagues. If you want to follow the show for updates about new episodes, just click on subscribe. Be a part of this podcast by rating and reviewing what you've heard and tell us what you think. More importantly, tell others what you think by leaving some comments. 
Now, I'd like for this podcast to be a little more interactive, where you share your thoughts about what you've heard, and I will share these with the listeners. For example, Joey left this comment, an absolutely brilliant podcast, such incredible stories. They are fascinating and inspiring, and I'm so glad I stumbled upon this podcast. Truly a great piece of work. And Jane had this to say, quote, What an uplifting series. Such human despair and bravery brought to life by Raphael Rose's insightful questioning. So much emotion from the presenter, interviewee and transferred to the listener. Not a big podcast fan, but this series has had me hooked. Unquote. I appreciate that you find these interviews inspirational and insightful. And so I want to hear from more of you. Please send me your comments or leave a review on wherever you listen to this show. This is an independent podcast. I mean, we are doing this out of passion, not pay. But we do need support to pay for the production. So please, if you want to make a small donation, click on the support link in the description at the end. If you want to advertise your products or service on this show, please get in touch. And if you want to connect, drop me a direct message via Instagram, Twitter, Facebook or any other means you have to make contact. Audio editing is by Audio Avalanche. The original music is by J-Row Productions. The cover design work is by Studio Minerva. Our guest bookers are Sophie Warner and Lewis Hunt. This episode was produced by me, your host, Raphael Rowe. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.